Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha! I'm so happy you joined us today for this very interesting podcast. It's a little bit different. I have as my special guest, Dr. Pablo Stewart, and we're going to talk about medical aid in dying, a subject that I think we need to have a lot more conversations about. It would be wonderful if more people knew about it. Welcome, Pablo. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm happy to. Can you tell us a little bit about you? Well, I'm a medical physician with specially trained in psychiatry. And so currently, and I, I do a lot of different things. Currently, I'm on the faculty of the University of Hawaii School of Medicine here in Honolulu. I am attending psychiatrist at the Queens Medical Center, where I work inpatient units, emergency room, uh, and we also have a contract with the local jail, uh, Oahu Community uh, Correction Center, where I go out there one morning a week and supervise residents in the care of prisoners. And if that weren't enough, I have been involved with medical aid in dying since the law was passed here in Hawaii in January of 2019. So I also do that. Wow, that, that sounds like a, a rich, full life. <laughs> You know, it, it does allow for a lot of different experiences, and I like that. I, I like doing different things, always challenging myself. Yes, that sounds great. Well, I'm I'm very interested in the medical aid in dying because so many people have have questions about it. Like, when is it appropriate? What does it mean? How is it done? So you could, could just talk about it and whatever you'd sure. like to tell us. Let me give you just a little overview of what the law, because it's a, a, a state law here in Hawaii. There's several states in the mainland that also have similar laws, like California, Oregon, Washington, uh, New Mexico, New Jersey, Vermont, and, and Washington, D.C., have similar, uh, they call it death with dignity, you know, patients' uh, autonomy, these sorts of things. But here in Hawaii, it was envisioned to help people that are dying, people with terminal illnesses that choose either that either choose to stop treatment, like cancer patients or end-stage renal disease patients or chronic, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart, all the really serious illnesses, and they choose to die. Uh, by withholding treatment, or their illness is to the point where there is no treatment, and and they, they wish to choose the time and manner of their own death. So first of all, the patient needs to be an adult, 18 and older, needs to be a resident of Hawaii, and needs to have a terminal illness that is that is confirmed by two different physicians that say, yes, this person has metastatic 
liver cancer that has moved to the, the hips, the brain, the lungs, and has a prognosis of less than six months. So that's where we start. So that's the patient profile. And then as there's these different terms that I'll use, because uh, this is what the law says. There's an attending physician, a consulting physician, and then in Hawaii, they have a requirement for a psychiatric evaluation. So as attending physician, I will meet with the patient, verify their diagnosis by reviewing their medical records or speaking with their, their physician, because I'm not involved in the direct treatment of these people. And then if they meet the criteria, then I would ask a consulting physician to come in to confirm that in fact they have, let's say, metastatic you know, liver cancer and that their prognosis is six months or less. And then if my colleague agrees with me, uh, then we ask a mental health professional to come in. And that's either a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a licensed clinical social worker. And that person does an evaluation on whether the person has capacity to make this decision and is not suffering from any mental illness that is contributing to their desire to end their life. So it's a, it's a team of people that that do this, and if all and and usually the people that are referred to me qualify because most of my referral physicians and community members know what the law requires, and so then I would write a prescription. If I'm the attending physician, that's usually my role for medications that will end their life, and then. The patient, along with their family in many cases, will choose a date to die. And then I, I will show up at the, at the given date, usually at their home, and we'll, it will help the patient self-administer the medication and be there until the patient expires. Wow. It sounds so supportive and a loving situation, a caring situation to be able to help people like this. You know, it it really is. And and before I started doing this work, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And then as I started doing cases, in, in all seriousness, it's it's the most profound experience I've had as a physician. And I've had a you know I've been a physician for over forty years, so I've had a lot of experiences. But to help a terminally ill patient who usually is suffering some sort of pain, discomfort, this, they're, they're not doing well. And to help them take control of their treatment, decide when, when and how they want to die, and these medications allow for a peaceful, painless death. Wow. You know, when you say they self-administer, does that that mean if they're they have like a somebody who has tremors and would have a hard time? Usually, somebody helps feed them. What would you do in a case like that? You you raise a very good point because the law in Hawaii says the patient needs to self-administer the life-ending medications. And so, just a, a quick backstory on that. There's a combination of medications, about five of them, that 
initially help the patient just go to sleep. And then they work on your lungs and your heart, and then you'll you'll just pass peacefully, usually no longer than two hours. Most of the time, a lot faster than that. But but the patient doesn't feel anything because they're in a, almost a coma. But the law does require self-administration. So I'll show up at their home with the medication. It's the powder. And then when they want to ingest, I'll mix it up into like a, it's about a half a coffee cup amount of liquid and with juice, usually apple juice. Some people like lily koi juice or whatever juice they like. And you mix it up. And in those patients that don't have a functionality of their upper extremities, like I've had several patients with ALS where their upper arms, where their upper extremities, their arms just don't work. They're, they're paralyzed or real terminal stroke patients that can't, that have a big tremor or, or don't have full use of their arm. What I do is I will hold a cup for them and use a, have a straw where the patient will then suck it in. Or in some cases, I will help hold the cup and, and give it to them as they're drinking it since uh, I'm a law-abiding citizen and I don't want to get in any trouble with anybody, I actually asked the Attorney General's office to give me a uh, an opinion on what self-administration means. And they assured me that if the patient has met all the other criteria and they have capacity to make this decision, those that are infirm and can't use their extremities, it's perfectly fine for me to hold a cup help them have it with a straw. What I can't do is inject them through an IV line, but I can help them drink the medication. Wow. Sounds like a nice, peaceful way to go. You know, it, it really is. And there's been some beautiful moments because, you know, you think, in, a, in, in my way of thinking, we, you know, the, the two most important days of your life is when you enter this world and when you leave this world. And I've actually had patients that wanted to ingest the medication on their birthday. So they have the full circle, but other times patients will wait to say if they have family on the mainland to arrive in, in back in Hawaii to be there at the day of ingestion, or they get, they get family there and, you know, I've been to some pretty nice parties, the death parties, with music and dancing and food. It's been quite interesting. Not all of them in that way, but a good proportion of them are celebrations. And the person is there with all their family and friends. And, you know, when they decide to say, okay, doc, give me the meds, and then I'll come in there with the, with the juice already mixed up, and I'll hand it to them or I'll help them drink it. And then they, they with dignity, they pass away. Mm. I, I love the concept of having the, the celebration of life while the person can still enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> That's a, the first death party that I attended was on Maui. It was upcountry Maui. The, 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 the family had moved the, the hospital bed outside. So we're looking over this beautiful vista. There was about 20 people there. And the, the, the patient was there. He had about seven brothers and sisters. 
and a bunch of friends and and they were singing songs and we it was just a really great party and then during it he says okay i'm ready to ingest the medicine so he took it and then we still had a party there while he passed out and he died about an hour later mm. it was really beautiful uh, yeah. I didn't anticipate how beautiful it was until I started doing these. And I think that's one of the main reasons I wanted to to talk to you, because when I I first heard you speaking about it, I thought it it sounded like so many people equate death and dying with fear and pain and terror. And this just seemed like and and lack of control. And in this way, they can control they don't really have anything to be afraid of because it's something that they're choosing and they can be sure that who they want to have with them is there. Exactly. And, and see, and you, you raise such a good point about choice. It's the patient's choice. And that's the one thing that I always emphasize in my work with these patients, because I don't want to give the impression that all I do is meet them, write the medications and have them drink it. I meet with the patient several times and we discuss their fears and we discuss a a very common question that I ask uh, all the patients I work with is, what do you think is going to happen when this body stops working, when your heart stops and you stop breathing? What's going to happen to your soul? And then I get a variety of of answers and you know, it, it, most patients are willing to have some discussions about this. So we talk about my views and I ask them what their views were and they, if they're religious. So it's, it's, it's but you're, you make such a good point. Their fears are pretty much dealt with ahead of time because it's their choice. It says, yes, I am going to do this. I'm taking charge of my life and I'm going to end it under my terms. Oh, I just, I, I'm so happy that that's available to people here in Hawaii. I've seen so many when they lived on the mainland and was working as a nurse. I see so many people suffer so much and they were just so frightened of dying and not knowing when they were going to die and what it was going to feel like. And it was difficult for people to counsel them because the fear still remained where with what we do here with what you're doing it you're there's an administration of a pathway to eliminate all that yes i just think that's fabulous no it 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 really is and obviously i can't talk to to the patient after they passed (laughs) although i think i've had some spiritual connection with them after they passed but the family are there because Every patient that I've worked with has had some family members, some larger than others, but at least two to three people at a minimum. And they're so grateful. After the person has passed, you know, there's some sadness involved when they when, when someone transitions. But overall, this, this sense of gratitude and about, you know, about how they really supported the patient in their decision and how wonderful it was to see him go in this painless way. You know, I, in California, I knew of someone who had an absolutely legitimate reason, met all the qualifications that you would need here in Hawaii. And the, the what the doctors did for this person was 
have a, a prescription of something that he could take by himself at home. And I thought, that's so sad to just say, here, go take this. And we, we, we just won't deal with you anymore. You don't need here anymore. So go away. It was the feeling that, that I got from what he was describing. And it, to just have to go home and, you know, get whatever you want to drink with it and sit there. And uh, in his case, it was pills. Uh, just take them. And I thought that, that that's not a way to a good way to go. That's a dereliction of duty, I think, on the, the part of the physicians that would do it like that. No, I, I absolutely agree. See, and you raise a very good point because the law in Hawaii is, as I described, where it says self-administration. So a few of my colleagues, especially here at Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, some oncologists I work with, they're, they're really great physicians, but they take the they take the letter of the law literally. So what they'll do when they do their evaluations and things, and in those cases, I usually come in as a mental health professional to help make, do, fulfill that part of the law. And they'll write a prescription, electronically send it to the pharmacy, then the pharmacy will mail it to the patient with instructions on how to take the medications. And that meets the absolute requirements of the law. But there's a difference between the law and what the standard of practice is. There's a national organization of medical aid and dying uh, practitioners. And we're uh, the standard of practice that we're trying to implement in all the states that have this law is that the person who writes a prescription needs to be there at the time of ingestion to assist the patient to extent allowed by the law and to be there during their passing. So that's my practice. Like, for example, I have a death that I'm helping this lovely 97-year-old woman on Friday uh, who's just tired and she has a bunch of chronic medical illnesses and she can't even lie in bed anymore with so many bed sores and she just mm. wants to die. And I'm more than happy to help her with that. But I'll be there. And, and I hope this gets out to practitioners because they're, they may not be aware that there's a standard of care that we're trying to implement in this, in that the prescriber should be there when the person passes. I just, that's so important. I, I have pictures in my mind of the, the person being by themselves and, and taking part of it and spilling the rest. And then what happens? You know, there's nobody there to, to do anything and the person could, have the potential of living through that with a lot more problems than they started out with. Yes, there's there's all kinds of potential bad outcomes that could happen. You know, like for example, I had a case of again a, a 90, I think she was 92-year-old woman had a real severe stroke. And she was just lingering and she was uncomfortable and couldn't use a restroom. And it was just, she was just wanted to die. And it turned out that her son was a guy about my age, maybe a little younger, who's a colleague of mine at Queens Hospital. Mm. And the pharmacy made of air and sent the medications to the, his mother's home rather than sending, rather than waiting for me to pick them up, which is my normal practice. 
And he got very upset. He goes, you know, I, I called him. As soon as I found out the error, I called him up and said, look, this is a mistake. They mailed the medicines to your mother's home. And he was very upset. He goes, this, these are very lethal medications. And that it's not safe to just have them with the patient. Because who knows if someone's going to accidentally get into it or who, you know, you can just see all the potential for bad outcomes. So that's why I really, uh, I don't mean be such a stickler, but I really insist about practitioners needing to be there at the time of ingestion. Oh, yeah, that absolutely. It's, I don't do it if you can't do it right, you know. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I, and I can see some practitioners uh, not agree with the situation, and if they don't, then they should refer them to somebody else to let them help them, because it should ultimately be the person who's who's going to be taking the medications that should be making the decisions on this. No, you, you see, you raise so many good points, and I've encountered several examples of primary care physicians here in Oahu who personally do not feel comfortable in participating in the medical aid and dying process. And I said, that's fine. No one's trying to force you. You know, if we want to have a discussion about this some other time, we'll, we'll do it over a cup of coffee. But they are good enough practitioners and they care about their patients so, you know, Oahu is a pretty small place, and, and I have a reputation of being a medical aid and dying here. So I, I get a lot of referrals, self-referral. People just contact me directly. And I said, fine, you don't want to participate? That's great. I'll take care of it. And their patients are very grateful. But there's a lot of cases where their primary care doctor or their oncologist or their cardiologist or nephrologist aren't comfortable with the law and don't refer. And then the patient on their own has to find out how to get to, to practitioners who are willing to do this. And sometimes we, we run up against the deadline where these people have been suffering needlessly. And, you know, I hustle out when I get these referrals, if at all possible, I get out there as soon as I can. And then in several cases, I get a call from the family that they died the next day. Or, or, or they died two days before I could even get the medicine to them mm. because of that delay. So th th uh, this is why I appreciate your podcast on for many reasons. But hopefully we can get word out to practitioners because they're they're the part they're the people that are are so important in this to facilitate this for their patients, even if they don't want to participate directly. Yes, it's just also important. And I think it's a, such a compassionate thing to be able to have available. And people can't use it if they don't know it's there or who to go to or, or what to do about it. And it, it's a good idea to get the word out so that if the occasion arises for you or your family, you'll know what to do. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and like right now, well, in the past, I've traveled to Maui. I live here in Oahu, and I've traveled to Maui to help several people die. But now I believe there are some practitioners on Maui that are able to do this, which is great. I, I still go to Maui if, if if they need me. 
and I, I believe there's like one practitioner on Big Island that is willing to do this. I'm not aware of any practitioners on Kauai. So if this comes up and there are people on Kauai that may contact you, I'm more than happy to fly to Kauai to help them do that. That's great. But hopefully we can, you know, meet some open-minded clinicians on Kauai and, and just have a discussion to see if they're willing to help out. I think it'd be great to have a, a seminar where people like you and maybe some family members who've really appreciated the process and have been through it could come and talk and, and share with, with, I can see it going two directions, one with, with people and families and the other one with practitioners who are considering it, but aren't sure. Yeah. See, there's an organization here in Hawaii called Compassion and Choices. Oh, and they're, they're a national organization, but there's a branch here in Hawaii. They're located in, in, uh, in Oahu, but they do, they're a referral network. And so if patients can't find a practitioner, you know, like if their primary care doctor is uncomfortable, they could contact Compassionate Choices. And Compassionate Choices can be a referral, you know, agency. To, and you know, I, I do a lot of work with them. I get a lot of patients' names from them. And, and so that's another option for patients. Oh, that's wonderful to know that that, that resource is there. That's just great. Yes. Wow. Well, what a fascinating conversation this has been. And I hope that uh, people will not only listen themselves, but share it with people who could use the information. And maybe because I have people all over the world that listen to my podcast, so maybe we could even see things happening in, in other countries or other places where it hasn't been accepted yet. Yes. by getting the word out more. You know, and and I, I appreciate this so much because all that I try to, to when, when I talk to my colleagues and we've had seminars and we do outreach to try to locate and identify new practitioners, all I'm trying to emphasize to my colleagues is that Medical aid and dying should be considered an end-of-life option, just like palliative care is, just like hospice care, just like continuing on with treatment. Mm -hmm. oh, whatever the options are at the end of life, medical aid and dying should be considered you know, on, on the list, and it should be offered to the patient. And that, that's all I ask, and because, uh, boy, I... I wish a lot of my colleagues could be with me when they see a seriously ill person who ingests the medications and before they die, they thank you. And they said, this has been, this is so great. I feel, you know, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh. Well, thank you so much for what you do for these people. What oh, you do my pleasure. for Hawaii. It's just wonderful. And and thank you for being willing to come on my show and help spread the word of, of this gift that people are can receive. Yes. Can choose to receive. Can, can yes. They have the choice whether to do it or not. Yeah. Which I think, you know, what, what more can you ask for at the end of your life? That you maintain autonomy, you maintain you are in charge of your life, which of course you are. 
But the medical profession sometimes has different ideas about that. Yes, yes. Well, well, thank you all for coming this week. And I, I'm sure it's given you a lot to think about. And I, I know you'll want to come back next week and listen to other interesting guests that we have here. And thank you so much, Pablo, for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Okay, thank you. Okay. Well, aloha, friends, and we'll see you next time. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.